I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Hey, darling. Yeah. I am going to spend this episode telling you about the most famous person in all of Victorian England. Yeah. I am including Queen Victoria in this. Yeah. Who would you guess that to be? Uh, I'm trying to come up with an answer that's not me looking at what your episode says. I'm failing. <laughs> so I'm going to say Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I'm going to accuse you of peeking at my notes. It's right in front of me. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, a fictional person, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. You never really know for sure. Yeah. Uh, is the most influential character in English literature. Yeah. Uh, maybe in all of fiction. This is maybe. the point I'm going to try to make. Yeah. But over the course of four novels and 56 stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, that then went on to launch hundreds of other works, adaptations, parodies, pastiche, and just a, a cultural force that cannot be uh, uh, denied. It has to be reckoned with. Yeah. So let's get to the reckoning. Let's reckon. <laughs> I will reckon. Let's do this here episode, I reckon. We suddenly became country? Western? Yeah, uh, we're actually going to talk about John Wayne. Oh! I, I changed my just mind. just changed it. All of a sudden, you just switched it up. So the story of John Wayne begins in May 1859 in Edinburgh, Scotland. So are you going to do a Scottish accent then for us now? I am not, because uh, that is the birth date of Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. Okay, are we going to get an English accent now? No. Why not? Because I'm so allergic to something. Yes, you are. <laughs> You're so, so stuffed. So yeah, if you notice, my voice is a little different, and my head's not quite screwed on right. I got the bad sniffles. <laughs> and someone took some Benadryl. So young Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle uh, was supported largely by his uncles, as his alcoholic artist father, Charles, wasn't quite so reliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a whole family of artists. Uh, Arthur's grandfather was, was very well-known and, and respected, and his uncles were also part of like the, the London artistic elite. Okay. His dad tried to get into architecture, but just never really amounted to much. Yeah. Uh, his mother instilled a respect and adoration for Englishness and, and chivalric romance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, she'd have him recite uh, the the family tree of the Doyles back generation to generation as, as far as they could trace it. Uh, in his spare time, young Arthur would just read American Wild West stories instead. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right. Brian Charles Waller lodged with the Doyles for a while. Now, he was the squire of Mason Gill, uh, who... <laughs> The Squire of Mason Gill. That's a real thing. I know, it just sounds amazing. And I'm <laughs> jealous. Now, the reason he needed to lodge in Edinburgh was to lecture in pathology at the university. Uh, uh, Brian Charles Waller was a doctor. Ah. So he became a financial sponsor of the family, uh, and Charles's alcoholism progressed. So uh, if it weren't for Waller, the, the Doyles may have wound up in the workhouse. Aww. Uh, he encouraged young Arthur to study medicine and later housed uh, Mother Mary in a cottage on his estate. Oh, that's yeah. nice of him. Every time you say young Arthur, I think of, like, 
like the sword and the stone, like King Little Arthur thing. Yeah. <laughs> type, not like, it's all about chivalric romance, dear. Yeah. That fits. Just think about little, little King Arthur. And having fun isn't hard when you've got a library card, as we shall demonstrate. Yeah, thank you, Arthur. A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K. <laughs> Taught me how to spell aardvark. Arthur did follow th- this advice and enrolled in the University of Edinburgh to become a doctor in 1876. Okay. While studying, he had a, a crisis of faith and then admitted to his uncles he no longer practiced Catholicism. <gasps> Well, they were pretty shocked, and they cut off his his money. Those jerks. They no longer supported him. Them jerks. So to support himself and, hey, see the world, why not, he signed on as a ship's doctor on voyages to Africa and the Arctic. Sounds like a good gig. Yeah. Uh, After returning from Greenland, he he would always tell the story about leaving, you know, as a boy and returning a man from from Greenland. Hair on my chest, muscles (laughs) on my arms. Uh, and some other places, I'd imagine. Uh, he he continued. No, 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 just on the chest. <laughs> He's bald everywhere else, including his head, and only muscles on his arms. He was a twig, chicken legs, weird, weird twig. But like Hulk arms. <laughs> he looked like one of those helicopter toys on a stick that you just go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he came back from Greenland with these ridiculous proportions. He met Dr. Joseph Bell, a lecturer in his continuing medical studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his study and practice of medicine continued into the 1890s. He was an early uh, vaccine promoter. He was arguing for compulsory vaccination and trying to uh, shout down the earliest anti-vaxxers. Those anti-vaxxers. Always around. From the beginning. From the beginning. Uh, he opened an ophthalmology clinic in London in uh, 1891, which received no patients ever. Aww. Aww. No, no need for uh, Arthur Conan Doyle to look at your eyeballs. But, like, what if your eyeball was not doing well? Then you'd find a different ophthalmologist. So let's double back to Joseph Bell. Okay. If you ever are curious about the real Sherlock Holmes, you will always be pointed in the same direction, Mr. Joseph Bell. Yeah. Uh, He was a diagnostician and stressed the importance of close observation. He had this sort of trick where in lectures, he'd select someone from the crowd. This visual gag is not working, dear. This is a podcast. Am I making making observations right now of you? No, you're far too close. I just look like... No, you said close observations. I am making close observations. Your eyelashes are tickling my face. Yep. I'm making really, really close observations. What do you deduce, darling? That you're really stuffy. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd like me to stop. You could make those observations with your ears. I just figured I I should test it out. Okay. Well, in, in lectures, uh, Bell would select someone from the crowd and just from taking a look at them, announce their occupation, their hobbies, what they've been up to lately, all sorts of information. Uh, yeah. He's and... all up in the business. <laughs> well, yeah. Th- then he would explain how he came to these conclusions by like the... Stalker. 
the way you carry yourself, the way your shoes are or aren't shined, whether you took off your hat when addressed, these sort of things. Uh, he was a pioneer of forensic pathology back before that was even a recognized field, including giving his opinion on the Jack the Ripper murders. Yeah. Yeah. Did, have you heard the recent thing about that? What is the recent thing on that? Some people are trying to claim that H.H. Holmes was also Jack the Ripper. That's not that recent, and it's also total bunk. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like come back around again. Oh, okay. It's like got some more... Is it because oof. they're making that movie? Is that why? Oh, it's because like his descendant is like trying to say that he has proof that this is it. And I'm like, no, you don't. That doesn't even line up, like the timeline. That's stupid. You're yeah. stupid, people. Stupid. Uh, but again, Joseph Bell is most famous. Uh, never mind his medicine. Never mind uh, his his writing. He's famous for inspiring the figure of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, his logic, that deductive trick, uh, even his physical description came from Bell. Uh, when Doyle would later in life describe his old teacher, he gave him the same uh, eagle face and close-set eyes and a high voice that uh, Holmes got in descriptions in his stories. I'm I'm just imagining an eagle with a high voice right now. <laughs> hey, everybody! I love America! Let's solve some mysteries! Uh, some theorize <laughs> the cocaine addiction came from his father's alcoholism, and his pride and unlikability came from Squire Waller. Hmm. And that's... An interesting factoid, I guess, but I just hate that school of, like, criticism. Yeah. Where everybody is just some sort of, like, ransom note chopped up from magazines of that, different things. That, like, There's no creativity Maybe involved. you could give Arthur Conan Doyle some credit for the thing he created. I don't maybe know. Maybe he thought of one thing on his own. But, but people who are familiar with Dr. Bell got the similarity right away. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Doyle after reading a home story while he was abroad, asking if it was about his good old friend from uh, Edinburgh University. <laughs> I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> so that brings us to the dawn of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, working without his family's financial support, or social support, like they, they weren't writing him letters of introduction to the, the fancy rich people who needed doctors they knew. Mm -hmm. uh, Doyle arrived in the city of Portsmouth in June 1882 with less than 10 pounds in his pocket. It's not a lot. It's like... That's a lot then. 900 lot or now. so now, but yeah, not enough to start a business, which is yeah. exactly what he did. Anyhow, he grew a modest medical practice to support himself, but... Didn't see very many patients at all, which left him plenty of time for his hobbies, his literary pursuits. I guess that's good. Uh, during this time, he married Louise Hawkins, a sister of a dead patient of his. What a great way to meet someone! I really hope their relationship started while he was still living. Yeah, and not like, well, you came to his deathbed. You want to <laughs> go out? Lovely funeral and lovely ladies. hey yeah. But this wedding did give him a, a supplemental income. She helped support the family for a while. Uh, in 1886, Doyle finished A Study in Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, it's about the first meeting of Holmes and Watson and the first mystery they solved together. 
Uh, it got rejected from plenty of places, but was sold to the Beaton's Christmas Annual of 1887 for £25. Okay, so a lot of money now. I mean, not great. I mean, you said £10 was like $900 now. <laughs> That's a ton of money. It's a it's a pretty good lump sum, but you're not going to live off it very long. Well, no, but... Especially considering once uh, Beaton's sold out that winter and was reprinted several times, Doyle never saw any royalties. Aww. All he ever got in his lifetime for a study in Scarlet was $25. Okay, that's BS. When it was reprinted as a standalone novel outside this, this magazine, mm-hmm. you know who illustrated it? Charles Doyle. What? Arthur's drunk daddy. What? Uh, he saw aspects of himself in Holmes. So I guess, I mean, people who draw comparisons, he's the first, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and drew Holmes as a self-portrait, giving uh, him the, the same scraggly beard that Charles wore. Mm-hmm. Never mind the physical description in the pages. <laughs> no. 1890 saw the sequel, Sign of the Four, or uh, The Sign of the Four. There is debate. Thank oh. you very much. Now, that was published by the Ward Lock Company for Lippincott's Magazine. Lippincott's was an American magazine, but they were this was part of their push to break into the UK market, uh, a new edition for a new market, and with all English and, and UK writers. Uh-huh. The meeting was over dinner. Oscar Wilde was there. The portrait of Dorian Gray was his contribution that was originally printed in uh, this British Lippincott's edition. Ah. But they uh, also kind of screwed Doyle in the long run. He was very unhappy with the the financial situation for these uh, deals he was making. So he hired A.P. Watt. A.P. Watt was the world's first literary agent. Oh. The first person to ever advertise, hey, give me a cut and I will get you a good deal for your writings, please. Yeah. Uh, Watt went to The Strand with A Scandal in Bohemia, the first Holmes short story. The Strand read it. Later, the editor would claim he called it the, the best short fiction since Poe. And they ordered a series of six. Cool. Cool, cool. So this is where really the success of Sherlock Holmes begins, in the pages of The Strand. Magazines were hot. It was the best time to publish serially. Uh, Magazine content was perfect for train rides, the middle-class leisure time after a day at work. Mm -hmm. Times where you could grab a half hour here and there. Yeah. Compulsory education in England began in 1870. This is the first generation of adults that was completely literate. (laughs) Nice. So the market blew up wide open, uh, and innovations in typesetting made mass printing viable. Doyle realized that serially published novels were a risk. Like, what happens to the person who grabs their magazine, they open up, oh, what's this fiction? Chapter 5? Screw this. Can't start there. So that's why nearly all home stories are short stories, and every one of them is a self-contained adventure. So that way they could read no matter where it is. Yeah. You don't have to read uh, A Study in Scarlet to get that, oh, there's this uh, brilliant weirdo and and an, his nice chummy doctor friend. They solve yeah. crime. Yeah. So while he was hanging out in this eye clinic with no patience, Doyle wrote the <laughs> first dozen short stories later collected as The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Strand kept commissioning uh, because people were eating this up. Their their uh, circulation was going through the roof. So another collection of 12 was printed, The Memoirs 
of Sherlock Holmes. He basically wrote 24 stories in, I think, 26, 28 months. It's like Goosebumps. Basically. <laughs> or, or what was that? Animorphs. Yeah. There were so many of those. I was deep into those. Yeah. Hork-Bajir Chronicles for life. Yeah. It's your thing. So the Strand stories were illustrated by Sidney Paget, or Paget Paget. I really should have checked that. Uh, but he was the first person to uh, depict Sherlock Holmes in his uh, in a deerstalker cap oh. or an Inverness cape. Uh, he also drew him a, a more lithe and uh, fit than the, the thin, reedy guy described in the pages. Now, the commission letter was meant to go to his younger brother. To the illustrator's the younger illustrator's brother? The illustrator's younger brother, oh. also an illustrator, yes. Well, I guess it's good the older brother was an illustrator, too. <laughs> he just wrote, oh, uh, there's mail for, yeah, me. Nope, this is for me. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, legend says that uh, Sidney's Holmes w- was modeled after that younger brother, but he denies this. Oh. Have we seen pictures of the younger brother? Are there paintings? I'm going to take the guy's word for it. I don't okay. know. Okay. I want I want some proof. I want some comparison. But uh, as, as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that Doyle didn't like Holmes very much. Oh. He saw him as a, a distraction from writing his important works. Uh. He, he wanted to write these uh, serious historical dramas that were extolling the uh, chivalrous romance and the virtues of Englishness that his mother was instilling in him. Yeah. And combine it with, like, the the adventuresome yarns that uh, he he, uh, grew up on in in his spare time. You know, Holmes pays the bills, but this is going to be what I'm known for. No, it's not. And his historical novels did come out to better, like, reviews from the literary elite, but far worse sales. Yeah, you ain't known for that. <laughs> uh, and another thing, Doyle and Holmes were very different people. Holmes is famous as a stark rationalist at all costs. Yeah, you have to eliminate the impossible and then blah, 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 you know the drill. Uh, but Doyle was a spiritualist. Uh, he experienced visitations. He attended seances. He was a true believer in the spiritualist movement. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. He was even friends with Houdini, but their relationship ended over disagreements over spiritualism. (laughs) Of course it did. Of course it did. Houdini, the chief debunker of the age, and he's like, no, seriously, I saw a ghost. Ghosts are real. Love them, ghosts. Later... I'm sure you're aware of this uh, affair, the Cottingly Fairies hoax. Uh-huh, uh-huh, there's a movie. There there's is. a movie, and I love that movie. Arthur Conan Doyle was the biggest defender of those pictures. I know, the, that's the, what the movie tells the me. The veracity of those pictures. Uh, basically, this is a story of these um, early photographs showing young girls in gardens being visited by actual fairies. Yes. And so Doyle was like, yep, these are real, absolutely. And they could not be conclusively proven as fake for decades. Yeah. Except for the fact that they're pictures of fairies and fairies aren't real. (laughs) Well, the movie says that they're actually... (laughs) They were eventually debunked with evidence. They were. I really like that movie. It's a a kid's movie, but it it goes a lot into spiritualism Mm -hmm. and the... 
I mean, it definitely goes the opposite way of like, oh, well, we can't prove what these pictures are, but very much fairies are real because we see fairies flying around in the movie. (laughs) But they actually like talk about like stuff with like, could it be fake? How could it be fake? Well, this Mm -hmm. looks like it's fake because of this. Like, Do you know who's credited with inventing the common image of the fairy as like a a young woman with like dragonfly wings and and wreathed in in flowing gowns and stuff? Arthur Conan Doyle. It is Richard Doyle, his uncle. Ah! One of his uncles. Ah! Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. But uh, that's not especially germane. It's just a part of Arthur Conan Doyle's life that I really love. Yeah. And there's a part in this episode where he disappears. And he's a fascinating guy, and he, he deserves more attention than this episode is going to give him. I just wanted to share that that part of his yeah. story. But what it really comes down to is what artist wants to be pigeonholed. We even talked about this regarding the Jim Henson yeah. uh, episode. So in order to get out of writing home stories, his first plan was to just keep charging more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And then the Strand is like, yeah, here's a dump truck full of money. Uh, (laughs) Keep writing. (laughs) Don't stop. We will pay you everything. Yeah. uh, Homes drove up subscriptions and sales so much that they were willing to pay anything. And so Doyle became like the best paid writer of his lifetime. Yeah. Since it didn't work, he was determined to just kill him. Uh, At one point, writing to his mother, quote, I must save my mind for better things, even if it means I must bury my pocketbook with him. His mom wrote back, no, no, please, no. (laughs) We need your money so I can live a nice life. Oh, he was set for life already by this point. She just really liked home stories. No, okay. (laughs) But in December 1893... Sherlock Holmes died. The Strand lost 20,000 subscribers overnight. (laughs) Uh, They they called it the great catastrophe in the offices. Yeah. People wore black armbands in mourning. Uh, His home was picketed. He may have been beaten by a woman in the street with her umbrella. Nice. This was serious business. And so for 10 years, people are begging Doyle, bring bring back Sherlock Holmes. Come on, write, write some more stories. We love them. We love you. Here is two dump trucks full of money. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. But he stands firm until the turn of the century. First with The Hound of the Baskervilles, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the best Holmes novel. Yeah, you know what I'm going to say? It. The best Holmes novel. Uh, and then with uh, The Empty House, which reveals that Sherlock faked his death. And he's back, baby. Yeah. Uh, he spent the intervening 10 years writing new stories with new characters. He wasn't in retirement. He just wasn't writing home stuff. And also caring for his wife's tuberculosis. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. She had contracted the disease uh, while he was still writing the, the first Go rounds, uh, and that's how he discovered the location of Reichenbach Falls. Oh, they got used in the final problem. They were touring the Alps looking for, you know, dry mountain air to soothe her, her uh, humors, basically. Yeah, as you do, as you do. But interestingly, when Holmes revealed that his death was fake in the empty house, only a few years had passed in the story. The stories had now crossed the line into historical fiction. The Return of Sherlock Holmes was is the third volume of uh, collected shorts, 13 of them between 1903 and 1904. 
Then His Last Bow from 1908 to 1917, seven stories in that one, mm-hmm. including the last one set chronologically in Holmes's lifetime. Oh. Uh, and the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, another dozen from 1921 to 1927. Mm-hmm. And all of these, except for His Last Bow, were set in Victorian times. London is a city of automobiles and suffragettes. But Holmes was uh, uh, still in a city of gaslight and handsome cabs. Yeah. Even as a world war came and went, Holmes stayed stuck in the 1800s. Yeah. So, uh, we've talked a bit about the stories, the canon, and this is where Doyle disappears. So, yeah. uh, we're gonna Bye, t- Doyle. Doyle. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Okay. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm fine. I don't think you're fine. I could handle it. Do you want to do mail tomorrow? I'll be fine. So, Sherlock Holmes holds the world record for the most portrayed human literary character in film and television. Dang. The weird thing is, I've never seen, like, anybody list Watson as, like, number two. (laughs) Yeah, like, shouldn't that be automatic? Yeah. So uh, there are some caveats in that title, of course. The most portrayed literary character, human or otherwise, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Do you want to guess the most uh, portrayed character, no holds barred? Uh, who? Satan. Oh! The devil himself. Oh, that makes sense. Even more than, like, Jesus? Even more than Jesus. Nice. <laughs> Way to go, Satan. You know what team we're on. But yeah, that record doesn't even mention uh, stage plays, audio drama, uh, or other, you know, things with actors in it. That, that's only film and TV. The first film was a silent, less than a minute long, that, that was produced in 1900 called Sherlock Holmes Baffled. <laughs> I mean, this came out while Sherlock the character was still dead. Was he baffled that he was alive? <laughs> was he like, whoa, where am I? All you could really do was, like, sight gags, basically. So it's Sherlock Holmes being burgled by a man that can turn invisible. And they're doing lots of, like, stop and start stuff, like, bewitched, basically. Yeah. The first serious Sherlock film, because that was sort of a slapstick, screwball, one-reel comedy, uh, was made in 1916. It was a filmed version of a stage play that uh, the lead actor and director, William Gillette, wrote... Uh, with a co-writing credit for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it it combined elements of uh, Scandal in Bohemia, the first strand short, A Study in Scarlet, of course, and uh, The Final Problem. Mm -hmm. It featured the same cast as the stage play. William Gillette played the part over 1,300 times on stage before uh, uh, doing this movie version. Dang. Uh, he introduced the, that distinctive pipe, the, oh. the big, fat, honking pipe. Yeah. 
He used that one uh, rather than pipes as described in the stories because it plays so well in a theater setting. It's, it's a big, it's big, it's a beefy prop. You can tell what it People is. People on the balcony know that's a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> so from 1939 to 1946, Basil Rathbone starred as Sherlock Holmes in 14 theatrical films and became the definitive Holmes. Yeah. The first two were straight up uh, Victorian era set adaptations, but then they switched studios midway through the run. Mm -hmm. And some of the stories from then on were adaptations, but all of them were set in contemporary times, and a number of them involved Nazis. Nice. Sherlock Holmes versus the Nazis. And that's that's 14 films in seven years. Yeah, Basil Rathbone don't quit, okay? Man, raking in the dough. Uh, there were five Soviet films about Holmes from uh, 79 and 86. I want to see these. They were apparently fantastic. Holmes was played by Vasily Levinov, who became an honorary MBE, member of the Order of the British Empire, oh. for his portrayal of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> now, uh, that brings us to the 84 to 94 run of Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes in 41 television episodes, adapting nearly every one of uh, Doyle's stories. They would have finished were it not for Jeremy Brett's heart attack, I'm sure. And he became the definitive Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. (laughs) There's there's a real Rathbone-Brett war a-brewing out there, and you don't want to get caught up in that. No. So currently, or very recently, there's the BBC series of contemporary set stories Uh loosely adapted from story Uh elements... Half the time they solve a crime, I Hey, I'd say in the original stories, they're only solving crime, per se, three quarters of the time. It's okay, not that different. Okay. Uh, an American police procedural set in modern-day New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, a pair of Hollywood blockbusters that aren't that long, set in an action movie, slightly steampunk Victorian England. Yeah. Slightly steampunks, pretty steampunky. Well, the bad guys keep trying to make it more steampunky for their evil ends. Yeah. Other actors to play Holmes include, I bet some of these will be surprises, uh, John Barrymore, Orson Welles, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee. Mm. They're usually trying to kill each other, and now they're both the same guy. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy. I have a third-hand account that it is pronounced Nimoy. Just because that person says doesn't mean you do. Just because somebody said somebody said that person said. Yeah. Roger Moore, Charlton Heston, Tom Baker, Peter mm-hmm. O'Toole, my boy, Alan Rickman. What? Uh, Alan Rickman was a stage play. Uh, uh, oh. Yeah. So my- there's no C in it. No. <sighs> Ian McKellen, Michael Caine, and coming soon in 2018, Will Ferrell. What? Will what? Ferrell. What? And then No, no, tell me. What is this Will Ferrell I Sherlock Holmes? I I imagine it is a comic portrayal. I have feelings right now. Describe your feelings. I I can't. I'm not sure I can even open my eyes right now. <laughs> They're very strong feelings. Uh but but then there's these sort of portrayals, parodies, pastiches, things like Sherlock Hemlock on uh Sesame Street for one. Yeah. Data on the holodeck. Oh my gosh, how many Sherlock episodes were there on Star Trek? Less than they wanted. Thank God. At the time they made the first one, Sherlock was not yet definitively in the public domain in the U.S., and so Ah. the estate 
made made some noise. I I don't know. I might be like on the wrong side of mm-hmm. the fandom line here, but most of the holodeck next gen episodes were so boring. <laughs> My God. And if you'd like to hear more about that, listen to uh, Pat Trek. It's pattrek.space. Uh, love that show. Shout out to do Pat they, and Pat. Do they have the same opinion? Oh, yeah. Uh, Good. The, the holodeck is a sex murder dungeon, basically. It's so boring. <laughs> you know when the best holodeck was used? First contact. Yeah. Let's shoot up some Borg. Yeah, that was fun. Get rid of the safety procedures and make them real guns suddenly. But let's talk about some okay. of these pastiches. Okay. Now, when I say pastiche, what I mean is... Pistachios. Yeah, I'm, I mean a delicious nut, sometimes <laughs> green, sometimes red. It's great in ice cream. They're red? Pistachios used to be red, darling. We were small baby children, but pistachios were red. The shells were dyed red. What, what, this That's a thing? Yeah, 80s kids will remember this. Red pistachios. <laughs> Why would you do that? It's a whole thing. I don't think we ever had those. Like, we had pistachios when I was a kid. (laughs) I think it was something to cover up how the shells would sort of, like, break down in transit, but then pistachio shipping got improved to the point. They're like, don't spend money on the dye. Just let them be beige, and it'll be fine. Why would you care what the shell looked like? I mean, peanuts look like when you get them. Because attractive produce sells better. It's a nut. We're all nuts. We're all nuts for Sherlock Holmes. So a pastiche. Yes. It's a pastry. It's the sort of pastry that continues on in the style of a previous pastry. Oh. I, I think some people hear the, the word and they think of it as interchangeable with parody or joke or or satire or whatever. I was making those. You were trying, and I'm so <laughs> proud. But but really, it's just something that, that carries on the torch. Sometimes it is silly and goofy, and sometimes it's just like, I want to write a home story too. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Here you go. There's a crime, there's mystery, there's deduction. The, the, the thing that sets them apart, of course, is that they are by people that aren't Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. So they often explore things present in Doyle's work, but not directly confronted. Like, he didn't have much time for these characters' psyches directly. Mm-hmm. Other writers love making that explicit. It's like fan fiction. It's like fan fiction. Uh, it, it's where you see a lot more of Holmes' drug use that comes and goes a little bit, uh, or things that get mentioned as previous stories in, in Watson's notes that never had whole stories written about them, like the giant rat of Sumatra. There's a whole Holmes sh- subgenre about this giant rat of Sumatra. I'm just imagining the blow-up rat that that, like, sometimes pops up around the city, that inflatable giant rat. Yeah, the, the, the union rat. The union rat, yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining that as the giant rat. And as we all know, Sumatra, the heart of the labor movement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, others take the opportunity to have Holmes meet other known Victorian celebrities, either real or fictional, especially Jack the Ripper. He, there, there's another big Holmes Ripper stuff. Well, that it's natural. That makes absolute sense because sometimes he catches the Ripper, sometimes he is the Ripper. Whoa, surprised Whoa. you. And people love having Holmes meet supernatural stuff because it messes with his worldview. Carry on my wayward son. 
So you're gonna meet them. He also meets Creed's Clearwater Revival sometimes. No, I was thinking of like the show. Yeah. I don't know what their names are. It's one named Dean. One is named Dean. I'll give you a buck if you name the other one or their angel friend. Castile. All right, I owe you a dollar. The other one is Sam. Uh, I only know this because Riverdale came on afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> the first home story not written by Doyle came out in 1891. Like, mm. Holmes was still fresh. Yeah. The ink, Fan fiction's starting fast. The ink was hardly dry. Now, you know the person who wrote it. Well, I, you know of this person. When I say this name, you'll be like, what? J.M. Barry. What? I told you. He <laughs> the invented in- fan fiction. He did not invent fan fiction, but he did invent Peter Pan. So yes, but before he wrote Peter Pan, J.M. Barry wrote uh, My Evening with Sherlock Holmes. Just a few months after a, a scandal in Bohemia was printed in The Strand, he wrote two more shortly after. Do you think that's going to be in the Finding Neverland musical? It just might. Uh, Barry and Doyle were also friends. Barry was another uh, University of Edinburgh graduate. Mm-hmm. And he's another friend that he lost because uh, they disagreed so much on spiritualism. That makes sense as well. One of the most famous Holmes pastiches came in 1974, Nicholas, Ma- uh, Nicholas Meyer's novel, The 7% Solution. This is one that's all about Holmes's drug addiction. It tells the story of what really happened uh, oh. in Holmes's several-year absence. There, there's no such thing as a Moriarty. That was a cover invented by Watson to explain his disappearance while he spent a few years kicking his drug habit with the help of Sigmund Freud. Ah. Uh, that was uh, made into a film just two years later. It, it was a pretty popular book. A uh, more recent, very notable pastiche, Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald, a short story from 2004, putting the, the characters of the Sherlock Holmes world into the, the Lovecraft mythos, Cthulhu mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holmes himself has faced off against Dracula, Fu Manchu, the, <laughs> the Martians of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and assisted a time-displaced Batman once yeah, or twice. Yeah, he did. Uh, I've got a, a sort of a soft spot in my heart for a lot of these things. Yeah. Because, in fact, right there on my shelf is one of the last fiction books I read. I loved it so much. It's called Who Killed Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. by Paul Cornell. Yep. It's about a contemporary undercover unit in the London Police Department, and they find the ghost of Sherlock Holmes murdered. And a lot of living people are being killed in copycat ways alongside the home stories. Yeah. So two people are found dead with Racha in blood next to them, just like a study in Scarlet, etc. Yeah. It's really good, you guys. It's a good, good book. But uh, the, the reason I wanted to do this episode isn't just because the stories are entertaining reads or because I can name a hundred people who have played the part. Uh But because of the influence on literature and criticism that came from this watershed moment in in fiction, basically, Mm -hmm. Doyle did not invent the detective story. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that should go to Poe. I acknowledge there are other claims, but I'm a Poe guy. (laughs) Uh, But every hero that uses their wits, logic, and evidence descends from Holmes. Uh, Some things that Doyle did invent in these stories, the idiot friend who tags along and needs to have the the smart person explain everything. Uh 
Watson isn't nearly as much of an idiot in the the original stories as he can come across in some of these adaptations, but it is what it is. Uh, also, the brilliant weirdo, the, the idea that anyone who is that much of a genius must be unable to relate to people. There must be something weird and different and wrong about them. Yeah. Also, the master criminal too good to be caught by the real police. Yep. And he introduced forensic science to the public before it was practiced in real life. One of the earliest cases of fingerprinting is not a real case, but the sign of the four. <laughs> the first public forensic laboratory was built in Lyon, France, founded by a fan, Edmund Lucard, who is sometimes himself called the Sherlock Holmes of France. Amazing. You, you get some very obvious to less direct descendants of Sherlock Holmes, like Basil of Baker Street, the Great Mouse Detective. Yeah. That's a pretty obvious one. How about Hercule Poirot, where uh, Sherlock Holmes is tall and thin, he is short and fat. And where Sherlock Holmes is all about evidence, Poirot is about psychology. Aww. Uh, Agatha Christie's greatest detective is a direct reaction to Sherlock Holmes. House M.D. Yep. I would say that Hugh Laurie is the best Sherlock Holmes of our generation. <laughs> <laughs> did Did you know that Hugh Laurie and played Benedict Cumberbatch's dad in a TV show? I did not know that. It's like Sherlock and Sherlock. Whoa! What? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Doctor Who stories, The Talons of Wang Chiang. Tom Baker is basically uh, Sherlock Holmes. He gets the outfit and everything. The giant rat of Sumatra is in it. There is a very Watson-like doctor they meet there, but his companion is doing more of an Eliza Doolittle thing. <laughs> and the villain for the first two-thirds is clearly Fu Manchu. It, it's a big Victorian pulp mashup. I love that story. Nice. It's got some pretty darn racist stuff in there, though. You, yeah. you are working with Fu Manchu-inspired stuff, after all. And, hey, I know we got a lot, a lot of anime listeners in the audience today. Yeah. Detective Conan is a manga and anime about a young boy, a brilliant boy detective. Yeah. The Conan in the name, Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh. <laughs> but contemporary fandom and criticism also comes straight from Sherlock fandom. Yep. Like, they crazy. I mean, the early 1890s yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, they crazy. They, cra they, they had public mourning for crying out loud. <laughs> Uh, so in fan circles, you'll see the terms Watsonian and Doyleist as a lot more popular words to use than intradiegetic or extradiegetic. That makes sense. I can see why they like those better. And they, they really describe the cases. That is to say, some an explanation that relies on treating the story as real and an explanation that relies on the story as a thing made by story creators. Uh-huh. Things like... Okay, Mary Watson, in one story, calls her husband James, but everybody knows that his name is John Watson. Uh -huh. how, how could this wife make such a foolish decision? Well, did Doyle just make a mistake because he didn't check over his notes because these weren't his important stories? Or was she referring to his middle name Hamish, which is an Anglicization of Seamus, which is a, a different language's version of James? Oh. oh, or maybe they had a dog named James and she just called her husband by the dog's name. You never call me Moki. Just wait. It's <laughs> only been a month. 
Also, anything that ever gives Watson's middle name as Hamish does directly come from that sort of argument. Mm -hmm. He is given the middle initial H in Doyle stories, but it's never written out what the full name is. That's where it comes from. What? Uh, so this sort of thing is called the great game. The, the treatment of the stories as actual facts written by an actual John Watson and this uh, Arthur Doyle guy is just some literary agent, you know, p passing it along to the Strand. Yeah, yeah. And so the game is people doing the work required to make all these discrepancies fit. Things like, why would Dr. Watson say his war wound is in different places in different books? It's, it's his wound he ought to know. <laughs> And how could a snake do what's described in The Speckled Band? This is a story where the, the killer kills people with the use of a snake trained to climb up and down a bell rope uh, when it hears a whistle, and it is fed on a saucer of milk, and other things that snakes cannot possibly do. Yeah. Uh, when was Sherlock born, and when did he go to school? I don't know. Well, these people have some theories, and they yeah. will share them with you. Oh, boy. The, the game was started by an Anglican theologian, Ronald Knox, as a joke, but similar-minded folks found it fun, and they jumped in, and now it is, it's a whole body of work. It was like Wikipedia. Like <laughs> wiki fandom things. I mean, Ronald Knox translated the Bible into uh, 20th century English on his own from the original Greek and Hebrew sources, but he's remembered for this. <laughs> That's how big Sherlock Holmes is. I don't think I can get that across enough. Doyle's Sherlock stories were the first use of the word canon to describe a collected body of work outside the Bible. <laughs> Debates began over whether certain Doyle stories featured Holmes in anonymous cameos and whether or not they should be added to the canon. Considering that he didn't really like him, I bet he they weren't actually cameos. Well... In these two stories, what happens is there's a mystery, and some anonymous person writes in to say, oh, you've clearly missed it, here's what happened, and then the anonymous writer turns out to be wrong. Okay, yeah, so he didn't like him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, you're full of crap, I'm gonna make you be wrong. So, so this is the first step on the road that led to the changing definition of the word that, that has now grown to mean the works that count in any fandom. And uh, from there, the facts that count. And even in some cases, the facts that I personally accept. Yeah. And this has developed into headcanon, which is like a whole other thing. Maybe someday we'll get like a, a live journal a history episode and we can go all into that. <laughs> I had a live journal. How was it? Deleted and gone forever, I hope. <laughs> Here we are now in 2017, where Sherlock Holmes is monolithic, unassailable, undeniable. Like, uh, his name is synonymous with being a genius to the level that only Einstein can measure. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're speaking sarcastically. <laughs> yeah. If you want to say that someone is a detective, you give them a deerstalker hat and, and a short cape. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes a friend. And sometimes a bumbling friend. Yeah. Like, yeah, this great game, the, the Sherlockian game, is, I would say, some of the source of uh, Watson coming across as a bumbling oaf. Because a lot of the times the easiest explanation is, oh, Watson screwed up. He, he just didn't understand. Yeah. 
Poor guy. Poor, poor, poor guy. guy. So now uh, you can find museums and shrines to Holmes and Doyle in, in London, at the Reichenbach Falls, in Edinburgh, really anywhere else associated with places Doyle lived and worked, or places Holmes worked, mm-hmm. in quotes. Uh, the largest collection of Sherlockania is at the Portsmouth Museum in the city where Doyle wrote those first two novels. Uh, they were bequeathed there in 2004 by Richard Lancelin Green, the world's foremost Holmes scholar. Oh. Yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? I have solidified the fact that uh, Sherlock Holmes fans are crazy. Yeah. The the old ones, the very old ones. Well, especially. they're all dead, so um, we, we can get by. The current ones. Um, you know, some of this was stuff that I, I kind of knew. I, mm-hmm. I I had a small understanding that he didn't really like his character. Because, <laughs> you know, he killed him. But you can tell how much he didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and it's definitely a character that Noah's been around and there's been lots of versions. But yeah, yeah. quite quite a bit more than I knew. <laughs> yeah. It's a big influence influencer. He's a big influencer. He does vape tricks on Twitch. <sighs> He's uh, sponsored by hoverboards. Pop culture. But yes, so he, he's influenced a lot of things and has seen a lot. And it's kind of insane how a character, someone who really didn't care about and was really <laughs> only writing because, oh, I'm getting money and that will help me do other things I want to do, mm-hmm. has become such a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The The thing that jumped out to me is how right place in the right time it was. Just like... When one of my sources pointed out compulsory elementary education in 1870. Yeah. It just makes so much sense. It's a big difference. A big difference in the amount of people that will be consuming something. Mm-hmm. And and to have a character for this growing middle class uh, of the Victorian era to, to embody the defense of the Victorian urban gentleman... Yeah. But not like the the landed gentry kind of gentleman, but, you know, a, a man of good middle class morals mm-hmm. who is an amateur, often showing up the, the wealthy who, who are so self-obsessed. Yeah. Like, just so demographically targeted. Yeah. Now I also really want to watch that fairy movie. <laughs> I'd only have it on VHS. Oh. So like, and I don't have it here. All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with all your mail and all our announcements. And see you then. Yep. Guess what, everybody? What? We're back, and my nose is free and clear. So many. It just happened instantly. Uh, And we're back to read some wonderful letters you sent us. In advance of this episode, I prompted our listeners to share with us their favorite detectives. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, just about every response was a fictional detective. Just about. Just about. Which made me think how much more famous they are than the real ones. Yeah. I I can't really think of like a real one. So let's start with 
Peter, Peter's favorite TV detective, is a tie between Frank Drebin of Police Squad and the 2012 uh, version of Dirk Gently, played by Stephen Mangan. Mangan? I don't know. Mangan? I don't know. He's always gaining men. Hallelujah, he's gaining (laughs) men. Uh, Or Brendan Fry from the film Brick. All very good uh, uh, entertaining choices, but Peter goes above and beyond the call of duty with some least favorite detectives. Uh, Dennis Marilyn Smith from the Fu Manchu series, because he's not very smart. He just chases all the Chinese people he can find, and because it's an absurdly racist book, they're always criminals. Yep. And Father Brown for for just obfuscating his reasoning just so he can morally chide folks. Very annoying in Peter's opinion. So thanks, Peter. Final Gamer also sent us an email that they are first off extremely upset that they did not know about the Mist Island project. <laughs> and they're just like wallowing in, in a bathtub of ice cream in Tori Amos because of this. Consider it a mercy that you didn't know until now. <laughs> uh, but they did tell us about their favorite detective. Uh, they don't want to say Sherlock Holmes, so they are also picking Father Brown. Uh, oh, there's a Father Brown fight. Yeah. Father Brown fight. Fi- Father Brown fight. Final Gamer goes on to say that Father Brown is a, a Roman Catholic priest and amateur detective, uh, fictional, and focuses on intuition rather than deduction, and uses experience of human limits and evil, both inside and outside the church, to find suspects. Which is why they like him. Final Gamer has also gotten Final Gamer Dad oh. into History Honeys. Penultimate Gamer. We are apparently kooky, but interesting. I'll take it. I'll take yeah. kooky. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Final Gamer. Thank you very much. Kieran writes back to, to say his favorite fictional detective is Dr. Gideon Fell, the creation of John Dixon Carr. So check out the novel The Case of the Constant Suicides in a creepy Scottish castle. That, that's where it's set. You can read it wherever yeah. you like. But if you have access to a creepy Scottish castle... So that's not required for reading. Good to know. <laughs> or The Hollow Man, also published as The Three Coffins, sometimes called the greatest detective novel of all time. But Kieran does buck the trend and provides an actual, real-life, historical detective. Yeah. Uh, Eugene-Francois Vidoc, a former criminal who spent uh, quite some time in prison, then came out, turned informant, and became a detective. He uh, organized the first-ever plainclothes detective unit, uh, was made an official branch of the police force by Napoleon, with Vidoc as its head, but uh, just because of anti-criminal sentiment, he never really got the official foothold that he deserved. Mm-hmm. Vidoc is still remembered uh, as one of the most important figures in the history of policing as a pioneer of proper detective methods. It takes one to catch one, after all. Yeah. So thank you very much, Kieran. Uh, Leanne sent us an email uh, about two of our prompts, so our last one being a, like, summer festival. Yeah. And, uh, Leanne brings up the Calgary Stampede, a uh, week-long rodeo in their neck of the woods. They just um, let hockey players run through the streets, and you have to yeah. dodge out the way. No, it's like cowboys oh, and, okay. and fairground stuff and horse races and animals and lots lots of food. Uh, apparently, th- for that week... 
There's the stampede breakfast all over the city where you get free pancakes. Oh. Uh, and then there's, of course, like the weird fair food, like <laughs> uh, butter chicken bear balls and clam chowder poutine. Poutine? Poutine? Poutine. We're American. Who cares? <laughs> Not from Wisconsin. Uh, the world's hottest pizza, one meter sausage, and deep fried jello. I want to know what deep fried jello is like. How do you deep fry jello? <laughs> like, wouldn't it just, like, disintegrate? Their technological superiority is unquestioned. I need to know. Like, Leanne, go go get me a picture of deep-fried jello and let me know what the process is here. I need to know. Uh, uh, their favorite detective, they they were have, have several uh, that they've liked, such as Nancy Drew, mm-hmm. uh, Detective Conan. Got a shout-out a few minutes back. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're... Favorite would be Shutaro Haidari uh, from Kamen Rider W. Pretends to be a hard-boiled detective from film noir stories, uh, but gets too emotional over everything. Oh, no. Uh, and I guess turns into a karate bug man. Well, yeah, he's, he's a Kamen Rider. That's what they do. Crazy. Crazy. Crazy <laughs> things. Thank you, Leanne. Thanks, Leanne. Uh, Alejandro is a longtime listener who, who's taking the chance to write in and uh, say his the first thing that came to mind was Batman. Da na 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 na. Obviously, Batman. Why does no one say Tintin? Because he's an investigative journalist. Ugh. Very different. Ugh. Completely separate. But Alejandro's real answer is Hercule Poirot. Yeah, that's why you got to say that one. <laughs> that's not really how you would say that. Uh, though all the incarnations are great, the best one has to be according to Alejandro and many others. Uh, the one played by David Sachet. Are you excited for the new Murder on the Orient Express film, dear? Kind of. Kind of? Kind of. It is cast out the wazoo. It is cast out the wazoo. <laughs> Alejandro, you, you looking forward to, uh, to that one? Thanks for writing. Uh, Rebecca sent us an email, uh, answering quite a few prompts. Uh, favorite historical dog, Balto. Gotcha. Uh, favorite behind the scenes movie trivia, Harrison Ford being, uh, very sick during Raiders, The Lost Ark, and deciding he did not want to do a sword fight and just shot at the guy. And, mm-hmm. With uh, a real gun. Yeah. He'll never be arrested. <laughs> and the actor, you know, reacted well. <laughs> and they did not have to retake it, apparently. Uh, favorite episodes being The Great Lakes Shipwrecks and Anabaptist. And summer uh, tradition, I assume we're talking about like the 4th of July here, instead of like going to fireworks and stuff. Uh, just sitting around and watching TV or playing games with the family. Yeah. Uh, favorite detective is Leroy Jetthro Gibbs of NCIS or Brian <laughs> Lane of New Tricks. Yeah. So thank you, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Gibbs is a handsome fella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Claritic writes back to say her favorite, one of her favorite fictional characters of all time, detective or otherwise, is Naoto Shiragane uh, from Persona 4 and all of the various releases of Persona 4 and the anime. But, like, let's stick to the games, folks. Come on. Keep, keep your hat on. She's a teenage detective prodigy who joins your team pretty late in the game and, and really drives the, the plot for that last portion. Because she actually knows what the heck she's doing. (laughs) But the reason Claritic really likes her is because how her plot has a sort of unintended yet powerful and moving uh, trans narrative wrapped around it. Uh, uh, The way she she navigates 
uh, gender identities in order to get ahead and be true to herself in the end. And it makes you wonder if they really didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but yeah, it's a bit of accidental representation that a lot of people have, have latched onto and um, found some solace in. So thank you, Claritic. Hugo, a longtime listener and first-time emailer. Two of those this time. Yeah. Uh, their favorite summer event is the Naked Bike Ride in Brighton, England. Me too, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, that, that's in Chicago. We yeah, have that. We have that. We have that. We also have the Pantsless Train Ride. Yeah, that's awful. Because they do that in, like, February. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in... England, uh, Hugo went, and there was over a thousand people, and it was great fun. Uh, favorite detective is Sherlock Holmes. Hope you like this episode, Hugo. Uh, favorite actor to play Sherlock Holmes was Jeremy Brett in the 1985 TV series. Yeah, so thank you, Hugo, for writing in. Hope to hear from you again. Hope you liked that 20 seconds of this episode, Hugo. Yeah. Uh, James uh, wrote back once again to say that his favorite detective is... Adrian Monk, which is another really good, like, Sherlock-alike that I didn't call out yeah. in, in that part of the episode. So I'm making up for it now. Thanks, James. <laughs> James also connected with Monk on a personal level because of his OCD and autism. You know, the, the, the diagnosis isn't on the same level, but there is something to relate to, something to be like, hey, I get that. I, I imagine it's also helpful, like, okay, let me explain what's up with me. Do you watch Monk? <laughs> it's kind of like that. Different. It's, it's different, different. But like, ballpark. <laughs> Re representation. Yeah. And and making something uh, more commonly seen, even if mm -hmm. it's different from what. And not stigmatized. Like, he's the hero. He's, yeah. He's a, help he's a good, good guy, this Monk. Yeah. So thanks, James. Thanks to everyone for writing in. Yes. If you would like to send us an email to, to have us write on the show, whether it's a prompt response, a question, comment, a story to share, where can those go? Podcast at gmail.com. Speaking of prompts, do you have one for the folks at home? What's your favorite fair? What's your favorite fair? Is it like your local fair, 4-H fair, farmer's market's kind of like a fair? I don't know. What's your favorite fair? Got any special fairs in your life? What's your favorite fairway? What's your favorite foul pole? What's your, what's your favorite fair? All right. And uh, again, those go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can also talk to us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And those are all at History Honeys. <laughs> Absolutely. And while you are communicating with us, why not help us communicate with others? Dropping us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, etc., goes so, so far and helps so, so much. And we are gluttons for flattery. Can't get enough of this stuff. Yeah. And you know what you should also do? You should tell a friend. Mm -hmm. You should tell your dad. Be like Final Gamer. Yeah. Hey, fi Final Gamer Pop. Thanks for listening. How kooky were we today? Yeah. Spread the kookiness. Somebody on Twitter just uh, tagged us to say that, I forget what sort of relative. It might have also been a dad. We, we were Grandma? Wasn't it Grandma? Yeah, we reminded some listeners' relative of Bill Nye. It was a grandma, I think, or a mom. And I am so down with that. I can be Bill Nye. <laughs> I'm cool enough like Bill Nye. I've got the body type. I'm cool enough like Bill Nye. <laughs> 
So absolutely, uh, word of mouth. Uh, is really the the only way we grow measurably, anyhow. Yeah, very true. Uh, I would like to encourage people to uh, check out Sex Archie one yeah. more time. We recently put up another one of our off-season episodes where we talked about Archie versus Predator, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite comic books of all time, Archie or otherwise. Yeah, it's great. It's so good, you guys. And even the artist thought we were great. Yeah, we, we got some attention from the guy that drew the most gruesome panel in Archie Comics history. And he liked us. So you <laughs> should like us too. So with that, I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.